you know, I've shared a little bit in the past uh, about a little bit of my background growing up. I grew up uh, in a broken home, uh, mother and father divorced when I was 11 or 12 years of age, and we were, you know, sporadic and going to church, and even uh, then it was sporadic, but about, uh, I think it was 11 years old. I think it was the uh, summer of 1973 that at a uh, First Baptist Church, Corpus Christi, Texas, at a vacation Bible school that I was attending, Pastor Dr. Vernon Elmore uh, came one day and shared the gospel with uh, our age group and just said, "Is anybody, if anybody would like to pray and ask Jesus in their heart to stay behind, and everybody else went back to class, and I don't know really much of a member who else did, but I remember I, I stayed behind. I wanted what he said. I didn't understand it and asked the Lord into my heart and led me through that uh, time of prayer. And I believe it was a genuine time of uh, coming to Christ. Uh, unfortunately, there was, no, there was no grounding in my family to follow up with that. I thought that was great and wonderful. But unfortunately, there was no grounding, and then later went to live with other family in Virginia, and was a very uh, was a pastor, uh, my uncle, and a very vibrant church. But my church experience as a young man was uh, uh, was in an environment of very sincere and passionate people that loved the Lord, but it was also very uh, inconsistent. It was also uh, lacked in some. Uh, what I would call some biblical depth. Uh, it was very, em- very heavy on emphasis on uh, experiential and, and kind of what we might would think, say, and understand here in this church is kind of a works-based, you know, of, of, of never quite uh, being uh, good enough or, 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 or uh, performing enough and, and kind of with a sense that you could be saved on Sunday and lost on Thursday. And you were just kind of always in this uh, limbo, you know, with your salvation, because it was never really taught or understood. It was just always, you know, you just kind of uh, come back uh, to the altar and and uh, get rejuvenated, get more of the Holy Spirit, and and there was a sincere, again, understanding in that. But I'm not sure as time went on that that's really was a correct emphasis, because there were so many other things that I think. Uh, brought the would bring those things into balance, and so as years went on, and really began to hunger for the word of the Lord and just a seriousness of wanting to follow Christ. Uh, when I was about 19 years old, uh, you know, really kind of moved more into a serious commitment of following the Lord, and was began to uh, just again hunger to know God's word, not to have a verse and then have somebody talk for 40 minutes or an hour on everything else except really, I just want to know the Bible. You know, you ever just, I just want to know what your Bible, I just want to know what this book says. And through God's providence was exposed and connected by radio and tape. Now, I know some of you, those terms are foreign, but there was actually these devices called radios, and there were these little plastic things called cassette tapes and uh, you could do amazing things with a pencil and, and turning it and editing those things. But through those uh, mechanisms that was the high-tech of its day, 
in the, uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, was exposed in, to people that like John MacArthur, Charles Swindoll, R.C. Sproul, and some various others. And what drew me, because my understanding, even though being uh, exposed to a lot of Bible and, and in a Christian environment by that age, uh, the thing is, I really didn't know very much. And so here, I was listening to uh, individuals that were teaching the Bible, that was taking, doing a series, and I think I, my first memory uh, was listening to Chuck Swindoll teach in 1 John, and just being able to listen, or MacArthur on, on Romans, and, and, and just being able to open the Bible, teach on two or three verses, and then when you went back and you read your Bible, you're like, wow, I understand what that means. And all of a sudden, the Bible uh, became a book and became God's Word that was bringing life. And, uh, and, and so I was really just uh, connected to those things. And one of the things uh, early on in that, in that kind of time frame that God uh, began uh, to study and, and look at and realize that it really kind of unfolded other things uh, in God's Word was the subject of what is sometimes referred to as eternal security or the security of the believer. Uh, some may say, uh, use the phrase, once saved, always saved. Uh, those, and, and, I, and I believe it was through uh, one of those Bible, or maybe all of them in different ways, began to study that because... I really kind of grew up more with a doctrine of the insecurity of the believer. You never really had any sense of assurance that you were saved or that uh, you were in Christ and, and there was that security of knowing that. And so that was an intriguing subject because I'd always kind of been, you know, taught or, or said, oh, that's... Uh, you know, that's what the Baptists believe, or that's a Baptist thing, or whatever. And uh, they would make some arguments, whatever. And so all I was, you know, just, again, being exposed to the Bible and listening to that particular subject being taught. But what it did is it really expanded my understanding, one, of who God is. It expanded my understanding and definition of what being saved is, salvation, you know, Sometimes we have a sense that salvation is somebody, uh, we used to use this term, walking an aisle, saying a prayer, uh, and there, you know, you're saved. But what it really is, what does it mean to be regenerated is a good Bible word, to be saved. What does that mean, and how is that involved in my security and my persevering as a Christian? Or am I just kind of subject to the rest of my life being in some kind of Christian purgatory, of being halfway in, halfway out, and it depends on what day it is, you know, and, and, and that's just the best as it's going to get. But as I began to very innocently, uh, in God's providence, as I said, uh, be exposed to more of the Word of God and the teaching of the Bible, uh, it became a real source of strength and that I began to understand that my relationship with Christ is not the basis of it, is not my circumstances, it's not how I feel, it's not whether it's sunny or snowy, it's none of that, but it's solely based on what, on the work of Jesus Christ 
and my faith and trust in Him and Him alone. That my security is not based on what I did or didn't do, but it is based on what Christ has done. Not just what Christ did on the cross, but what God did in Christ before eternity was ever, you know, back in eternity, before the worlds were even formed, that God had a purpose and a plan for my life. And sometimes people hear that and they think, well, that's kind of an arrogant, prideful thing. But I think when you understand the depths of what the Bible teaches about what our, what our security of salvation is all about, uh, if it produces pride, you don't understand it. You've not made, it, it should produce a sense of, of humility and worship <laughs> uh, of anything. And so, so as time went on, certainly those were things that God... Uh, began to lead and direct, and I'm still learning. I'm going to be 60 years old in a few weeks, and uh, now you're supposed to say you don't look it. Now, that's where you come in, but I, I feel it. I don't know about looking it, but I feel it. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, I'm still learning. I'm still a student. There's things in which I just feel like I want to go back to first base, and I just want to start over again and just want to learn afresh and new. And that's the wonderful thing that whether you walk with Christ one year or 50 years or whatever, it's never ending. You're, you're ne you never exhaust the magnitude of God's truth. There's always a, a freshness to it. There's always things to learn. And one of the things that and by the way, this is free. I haven't even hit my clock, so this doesn't come out of my time. I just want you to know. But, um, but one of the things that I desire as your pastor is that, that you have that same hunger and desire to know the Word of God. Uh, that's why in this church we put a lot of emphasis upon teaching the Word of God. We want to have balance. We want to have balance of all these things. But I know and you know that there's two ways that God grows the believer, and that's through the Word and the Spirit. They work in tandem. They're not in competition with each other, but it's the Word and the Spirit in our life that, that we grow and we get to know God, and that's how we learn about God is through His Word. And so there should be a hunger, there should be a desire to know more. And so as we begin another year, 2022, it's a good time to just say, you know what, I'm not really satisfied with my growth in the past year or two years. I, I want to create some new challenges. I want to I be more consistent in, in my, my study of God's Word. I want to be more consistent in my faithfulness to the church because that's, again, where we come together as a community to be taught and to learn together. And so with all that being said, this morning, uh, the title of today's message, uh, actually before I do that, uh, the verse I want to read first is 2 Peter 1.12. And this is a thought I had. Therefore, Peter says as he's writing his letter to uh, his audience, he says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them. Though you know them, he says, I want to remind you of these things, that you are established in the truth that you have. And so with that this morning, that's what I want to do, uh, is I just want to remind you of some things, those of you who have been believers and are uh, growing and maturing in your faith, and then those of you who are, um, are, are maybe more at a beginning stage or early stage, that this may be new to you. But irregardless, we need to, be, we need to remind ourselves of some things. Uh, and in a few weeks, on a Wednesday in February, we're going to do a series called Foundations. And that's just kind of, again, a reminder of some things of what 
what is invo- what is it, if I had to uh, pick, you know, 10 things or 12 things that are essential things that as a Christian I should, I should have some understanding of, I should know about, uh, that's what that foundations is. Because without a foundation, like a home, without a foundation, everything you build on it is subject to the winds and the weather and, and it's not very stable. I, I want you to be stable in your Christian life. I want you to be strong and stable. So when, as the Bible says, that when the, the last days, uh, that when the, every wind of doctrine is blowing and there's confusion, you're not going to be confused because you know the truth. You're established in these things. And uh, every once in a while, or not every once in a while, maybe every week, we should always be reminding ourselves of some essential truths and essential uh, teachings of God's Word. So with that uh, overextended introduction, I understand uh, the title of today's message is called The Eternal Security of the Believer. And we're going to dig into that a little bit in Romans 8. Throughout history, uh, there has, uh, this has been a subject of um, somewhat uh, controversy, Christians have disagreed. Uh, some of these terms you may be familiar with, and it doesn't matter if that you are or you're not. They're not, they're not uh, contingent on you entering heaven or anything. But, you know, you have uh, uh, those on one side who uh, have taken a you know, view in which a person uh, can uh, freely chooses to come to Christ, and they can lose that salvation. And then you have others that on the other side say, no, that's something that God has done and that uh, that is secure in Him. And then you kind of have a little bit in the middle. But nevertheless, if the, if the understanding of this uh, security of the believer, if we could just point to one, if we could just point to uh, or all the Bible verses uh, lined up on just one side, then there wouldn't be any controversy. But there's verses that imply this way. There's verses that imply that way. And so as good students of the Bible, when you come to difficult passages, you want to you compare line upon line, precept upon precept. You don't want to just take a verse or two and just say, there you go. You want to be able to, as Paul told us, Ephesian elders, you want to be able to uh, look at the whole counsel of God's Word. That's why I encourage you to bring a real Bible to church, that you can see the end from the beginning. You can turn pages. You can, there's something that has been proven that uh, if you do that, and I'm not saying I have electronic, I use electronic stuff all the time, but there's something about uh, at some point in your, in your walk, uh, you should at least be able to open a Bible and be able to turn to things because you see a flow. You see what Paul wrote here and what he wrote over here, and you begin mentally uh, to be able to understand and compare and connect things one to another. And so when you come to things that may seem a little controversial or, or we're not sure we come to agreement on, that's where, again, you want to be a good uh, Berean, as uh, in Acts 17 that was commended the church at Berea because they checked everything out that Paul said by the Word of God. So you want to compare Scripture with Scripture. Now again, we're not going to exhaust this subject tonight. This is really a series I actually thought about taking multiple weeks on a Wednesday night and looking at, but for in the spirit of what Peter wrote about reminding us of some things, these are some things 
that are important. And as I was reflecting on it, this again was something that God really began in my own life to give me a greater understanding of who he is and the wonderful work of redemption that is so uh, clearly unfolded in the Word of God. And so this morning we're going to look at, uh, at this passage in Romans chapter 8. And before we read that, let me just kind of uh, say this, that when it comes to the eternal security of the believer, when it comes to the security of our salvation, uh, my conviction, and I believe that it is clear that, uh, that the Word of God is not uh, uh, ambiguous, it's not, it, it isn't confusing. That's where, again, you look at the totality of the Word of God. But I believe that the totality of Scripture and the weight of Scripture uh, comes down clearly on the side that God has saved us and that He will keep us for all eternity. That's what we mean by the security of the believer. I am kept in God because God has done this. And we're going to uh, unpack that just a little bit this morning. So the security of our salvation as Christians, or sometimes we might uh, tie that into the perseverance of the believer. This all, because we're going to look at Romans, this all flows out of Paul's, understand, or Paul's teaching as an apostle, as ordained of God, uh, the Word of God in his teaching about what salvation is. So we're, we're kind of coming into it about midway here versus, uh, you know, like we did on Wednesday with Steve, uh, kind of going through the book of Romans. So we're coming in kind of in the middle of chapter 8 a bit here, but it's talking about uh, salvation. And so the conviction of Paul, and I believe the weight of the Word of, the word of God, is that salvation from first to last is totally by God's grace and God's pleasure. And if any of it uh, is contingent or due to us, my friend, then our salvation is in eternal jeopardy if it's hinged on something I did, if it's weighted down on something that I must be committed to doing. It's weighted down on what God has done. So we're going to unpack it in three different ways this morning. But before we do that, let's just read. It's a few verses. Let's go ahead and just read. Uh, Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 29, and I'm going to read to verse 30. Romans 8, great chapter, wonderful chapter, a lot of wonderful things here. We're just going to kind of select this, beginning at verse 29, Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined... He also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us learn uh, God's word this morning and uh, just seek his help. Father, we uh, depend on your spirit to lead us and guide us in your word today. Help us to understand Lord, even if some of these things may be new and challenging, God, let us uh, be willing to submit to saying, Holy Spirit, teach me, Lord, don't let me just fall into 
things that I've always heard or leaned into in the past. But Lord, help me to have a teachable spirit. Let me be challenged by truth, God. Let me be a student of the Word of God. Lord, not only just to have knowledge, that doesn't do me any good, but if it's knowledge that helps me to understand and become more intimate uh, with you and my relationship and causes me to, to worship you and be more in awe of God, this wonderful work of salvation, God, that you have done in my life. And Lord, let it be true. Let it be so. And let the word of God become alive uh, in my own heart and mind and understanding, Lord, the richness of your redemption. And we pray this in, your, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice with me this morning as we unpack this, and the truth is around that if you are saved, it's because God in His grace chose to save you, not because of anything you did, but He chose to save you. God has planned and purposed your salvation from beginning to end. So with that, notice with me, number one, God conceived our salvation. God conceived our salvation. Our salvation is secure because God originated it. God conceived of it. Our salvation was God's idea. It wasn't something originated with us. He is the great eternal designer of our salvation. And there's a couple of components uh, in verse 29 that, uh, that undergird this, is that, is that, first of all, is that God originated our salvation by setting His love on us before time began. When did this take place? It took place before time began. You realize time is an earthly creation concept, right? God did not get a new day timer January 1st. Okay, he doesn't have to set his clocks at daylight savings time. He's not bound by this. I mean, Peter said, you know, a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. I don't think that's some end times math equation. I think it's just a, a sense of like time in, in eternity doesn't really exist. Everything is a, is a now with God. That's why he could say to us that are presently alive and here, you are right now seated in the heavenlies because God is seeing the end from the beginning. He's that alpha and the omega. So God conceived our salvation and the salvation, according to verse 29, reminds us that he set his love on us before time, our concept, began. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The meaning of foreknow is really important there for you to understand that. Uh, this is what it does not mean, and some people explain it this way, and I don't believe that this is what is meant here because it would be inconsistent with other things in Scripture. For no does not mean that God, if I could say it this way, that God looked down, God looked down history. He looked down history like a tunnel, and he sees everything that's going to take place. But what he's seeing is he's seeing... Uh, everything and everybody and every action that takes place, and he sees those who will, uh, at, at, in 2022, are going to uh, come to faith in Christ, and because he sees what they did, he therefore chooses them based on what he sees. 
First of all, there's a flaw in that. There's a flaw because God never learns anything. Think about it. God does not learn anything, okay? And first and also, he's not responding. He is the first cause. He's the initiator. He is the one who causes and conceives these things to happen in our life. So he's not responding to something that we have done. He is, he is the one who has conceived this salvation. So for no, we're going to put that idea aside of what that means. It just means that God saw before time. It means that God foreordained, God predetermined, He conceived, He originated, He purposed in time to set His love on someone so that they would enter into relationship with Him. And if you don't, if you don't understand grace, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that it's by grace that you are saved, and that is not of your own. It is a gift from God. Uh, then th- this may be a little challenging. But, but let me also have you look at Romans 28, or 29 and 30 of Romans uh, 8. And I just want you to notice here, just uh, and mark it in your Bibles, you know, right? Circle these things, do these things. But I want you to notice in these uh, couple of verses that God is the subject of all the verbs. He's the one taking the action here. Look at this. Verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he, God, also called. And those whom he, God, called, he, God, also justified And those whom he, God, justified, he, God, also glorified. Who's doing all the action here? So it's not that God just knew. He learned something. Because if that's true, then everybody, he foreknows everybody. But he chose specifically to set his love on some. The Bible not John Calvin, not R.C. Sproul. God, in his word, uses words like predestined. He uses words like elect. Those are Bible words. Now, I understand, historically, we have differences in what those understand. I mean, we are Wesleyan brothers uh, have an understanding, and, and those of, um, you know, are more of a, a reformational uh, Uh, understanding or again I don't want to get into that because that's distracting but I just want you to be focused on what is the Bible saying what does it doesn't say and if you find some ambiguity in there of something you're not sure what it says that's okay just don't don't just reject something you know total say you know what I need to dig a little more in there I need to compare I don't need just to listen and read people that undergird my own biases I need to listen and I want to I want to let the word of God Teach me what it says. And when the day is done, you know, all of us should throw our hands up and say, great is the wonder and mystery of the Creator, God, that He would do all these things. And so, so, so God, in addition to His setting His love on us before time began in the eternal counsels of the triune Godhead, also we learn in verse 29 that God originated our salvation, conceived of it, by predestining us to be, look at this, conformed 
to the image of his son. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed, shaped, molded like the image of his son. God did not save us in order just to punch a ticket and go to heaven. God is very intentional in why he has done this work of salvation. He wants us, God's people, he wants us to be like Jesus. Okay? God has uh, done this. He has done it with a purpose and a plan for us to be conformed to the image of his son. See, our salvation, hear me, is not primarily about our happiness. Now, I cannot think of any other way to be happy than, as the old hymn says, to be happy in Jesus and to be happy in knowing you're going to spend eternity with him forever and ever. But that is not the main goal is our happiness. The main goal is for God the Father to glorify his Son. Is God to glorify his Son. God conceived of our salvation with a goal. Do you see that? In order to conform us to his son. Our salvation, here's what I want to say. Our salvation is wrapped up in the eternal purposes of God in glorifying his son, Jesus Christ. Why can we hold on to security? Because it's not based on me. It's based on God's commitment to His Son, Jesus Christ, in the eternal covenant-making God, that He will glorify His Son. And if I am in Christ, guess what? I get in on that wonder of wonders of, of being a part of glorifying Jesus. See, he, yes, He is committed to me salvifically, but He's committed to me through Jesus. You're not in Jesus. There's no commitment. There's no covenant. Romans 8, 28, right? Scripture, we didn't read above that. For we know that he works all things together for good to those that love him and are the called. You see the connection there. God's purposes will not fail because God will not fail in glorifying his son. Secondly, Praise be to God, God conceived of our salvation, but we also, in verse 28, God caused our salvation. Our salvation is secure because God effected it. Here's what I mean by effected it. He made it happen. You see, salvation, the cross, is not potential salvation. It is actual salvation. God made it happen. God affected our salvation, Romans 8, 28, by calling us. Look at verse 28. And I just quoted it, but I'll read it again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, in the scripture, hang on with me. I want to just, so don't check out on me. Uh, in, the, in the word of God, they're calling is used in two different ways. And let me explain it this way. One is the Bible uses it of what we might would call a general calling. Okay, a general calling. Give you, you know, Jesus said in Matthew twenty two fourteen, 14, many are called, but few are chosen. 
Uh, he issued a call when he said, repent and believe the gospel. Uh, when he said, come to me, all you who are weary, uh, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So the general call is scripture, all right? That, there is a general call. We uh, do a, a presentation of the gospel, and there is a call to believe in Christ. Give you a great example in scripture. It won't be on the screen. You'll have to, you'll have to uh, use your Bibles or... Uh, or swipe it, or whatever you want to do to get there. Uh, but look over to Acts chapter 17. I'll give you an example. Acts chapter 17. And find, we're going to look at verse 30. Acts chapter 17 and verse 30. This is the Apostle Paul in Athens, Greece. He's at the Oropagus, or what I think King James calls Mars Hill. And remember, he is waiting for Timothy and Silas to kind of catch up with him. So he's kind of going on the uh, tour there of Athens, and that's where he kind of comes upon this, uh, this group of individuals that are meeting there and dialoguing and comparing philosophies and religions. It's kind of this open-air space where there's kind of this public dialogue. It's kind of what I call the Oprah Winfrey show of its day, all right? That's kind of what they're doing down there. And so somebody comes in with, you know, visiting aliens. Well, they get a time, and somebody comes in with, uh, you know, a, a talking dog, they'll listen to them. And so Paul says, hey, I might as well get in on this and share the gospel. You know, they're gathered together. They, they think they're pursuing truth, so let's, let's have at it. So that's who he's talking to. And so he begins to, remember, he, he, he says, you know, I see that you're very um, religious. You've got idols to everything. In fact, you have an idol to the unknown God. In case you don't want to offend anybody, you have somebody, the unknown God, you even have an idol to that. Uh, and the Greek says, I see, it really reads that you're smothering idols. I mean, they are just, you know, pagans. But he uses it as an opportunity to talk about Jesus. So as, I'm just going to bring it down. We're talking about this general call, all right? Bring it down to look at verse 30. This is Paul. He's winding it down here. And then he says, uh, let me begin at verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, i.e. idols, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So in other words, he's saying, it's not, it's not your idols. It's, that's, but look at what he says in verse 30. Talking about the general call. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now, the same Paul that wrote Romans 8 says this, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, talking about Jesus, whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him, this man, from the dead. Do you see what Paul's doing there? He's giving a general call. To all those pagans, they need to hear and believe in the gospel. They need to hear and believe in Christ. So there is a general call to the gospel. We're talking about Romans 8.28. Paul is speaking about that God has called us. God has caused our salvation. He has affected our salvation by calling us. But there's a problem. In this call, man has a massive difficulty or a problem in that man the bible pictures man humankind 
that there is a deadness spiritually, there's a blindness, there's a deafness, that in and of ourselves, because of sin, we in and of ourselves, apart from the intervention of God, we do not have the innate ability to respond to this truth. That's why we've got to have an intervention. We've got to have the work of the Spirit. Give an example. John 3, just, uh, I'm not even remember if I put this on the screen. Jesus said, remember John 3? This was John in the context when he's talking to Nicodemus, where God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Then he says in verse 19, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil, that we naturally are inclined to love the darkness. We're not, we're not, we're not desirous of the truth. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest their works be exposed. Some people don't want to darken the doors of a church because... They've determined that they don't want to be exposed to truth. Paul said that in Romans 1. He said, even though they know the truth, they suppress it. I always picture, you know, I've used that. You know what a little jack-in-the-box is? And you know, the little clown pops up. You know what you have to do? You have to suppress it to get the lid on. Or maybe your kids did it for a little bit until reality hit. They put their fingers in the air. And said, no, 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 I can't hear what you're saying. Nah, nah. Listen, that's the way the world, the world is running around like this, screaming and yelling because they refuse to be exposed to the They hate the light. They love darkness. Why are those places that you and I used to hang out? Why, when you went into them, they were so dark? Oh, sorry, that was wrong crowd. All right, all right. All right. So there's a general calling, right? You see that? There's a, not, there's not a non-discriminate preaching of the gospel. Billy Graham, come to Christ. Come now. The buses will wait on you. I mean, come to Christ, right? There's a call. But then the Bible, specifically in the New Testament letters, doesn't use calling in the letters. Acts is not part of the epistles, but in the epistles where Paul and Peter and John are teaching, it uses calling, not in a general sense, but it's used in a very specific sense of something that is effectual, something that actually takes place. You could say it's different than a general calling, it's a specific calling. It always accomplishes, when God, when he's using it here, Paul is using called to mean that it accomplishes God's divine purpose of giving light to the spiritually dead so that they can respond to the gospel. Spurgeon, somewhere in his writings, compares the general call to a sheet of lightning that lights up the sky but doesn't hit anything specific. But the effectual call is like the lightning bolt that hits its target. I'll give you an example. Remember in John 11, Lazarus? Lazarus is dead. He's deader than dead. What, four days he's dead? Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will 
live even though they die. And the raising of Lazarus, Lazarus is a great illustration of what I'm saying. Because Lazarus is dead. In fact, in the old King James, when it speaks about Lazarus' condition there in the tomb, it says that he stinketh. His body was in the process of decay. That's dead. That's dead. There's no resuscitation. Jesus, to illustrate what I'm saying here, said, Lazarus, come forth. That word, that effectual call brought life to that dead man. And what was dead became alive because of the call, the voice, the life-giving call that was imparted to Lazarus by Christ. God's word, God uses the preaching of the gospel in the general sense, but you can't have the preaching of the gospel because that's the means that God has used in order to effectual, effect, to make effective this work of salvation that they would hear. Use your Bibles again. It's a good exercise. It helps separate the pages this morning. All right, look at Romans 10. Turn in your Bibles to Romans 10. Here's another example. Romans chapter 10. I want you to get your money's worth this morning, all right? Look at Romans 10. Now, God could have done it in all different ways, couldn't he? He could have painted Bible verses in the sky. He could have grown tulips, you know, with Bible verses and the plan of salvation. He could have, he could have done it all sorts of ways. You catch a fish and you got a New Testament in a fish. I mean, he could have done all sorts of things, right? But God has established this this preaching, this, and I say preaching, that kind of makes it just like there's a certain class. There is a preaching dynamic, but there's also a calling that all of us have as disciples to go into all the world and share Christ, right? That's, a, that's something he's commissioned to his disciples. But look in Romans 10, verse 14. You see the necessity of why there must be this proclamation of the gospel that's tied into this specific calling that God gives that the Holy Spirit brings conviction into the life of a, of a dead man, a dead woman spiritually, that what was impossible at one point, now they see their sin, but they see hope in the light of Christ. When Paul says, verse 14, Romans 10, How then will they call on Him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? Or how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed and what, is, what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You see, God uses the proclamation of the gospel. God uses the, the, the calling to bring about and the, make effectual the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a man or a woman to respond to him. That's a great mystery of what God does. But God does this. Uh, in John 5, verse 24 and 26, I think it's on the screen. 
Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Paul said something connected to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when he says, In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 6, For God, but God is not hindered by what Satan does, for God is the one who said, Let light shine out of darkness. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God that God has called us unto himself, that God has brought us light in the midst of our darkness, that God has shined the light and the love of God in Christ that has redeemed us and saved us. We didn't do that on our own. God has done that. Now, some people, in fact, Matthew 13 in the parable of the sea, or the parable of the soils, really, Jesus speaks about how some seed fell on rocky soil and, you know, the various soils and using the seed. And he says, Jesus explains, the seed is the word of God. Some will respond. You think, well, what about this person? They were really saved and Boy, they just seem like they've just totally rejected and they're just kind of on the whole other end of the spectrum. Well, ultimately, only God knows a person's heart. Let's just make sure we understand that, okay? Nobody has an E tattooed to their forehead, all right? God knows the heart. Just like God knew the heart of that thief on the cross that in that last nanosecond of breath and life, God would redeem him. But we know that in that Matthew 13, in that parable of the soils, we know that some seed didn't take root. Some people make a superficial commitment because they're attracted to the blessings that God offers, but they're really not interested in... They want, they want the gifts of God, but they don't want God. That's why there's such a, 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 you know, there's such a popularity with the, with the false gospel of the prosperity message today because it offers a Christless Christianity. Those that God has sovereignly chosen in grace, God's effectual call comes with power. So that the lost man or the lost woman is quickened unto life. Their eyes are open to the glory of Christ. That which you once despised, you love, you're drawn to. Their eyes are open to what he did on the cross. It's not just a, a trinket and a medallion to wear. All of a sudden you understand what that cross was all about. By faith you respond in trust and repentance. 
And what's the difference? Why do some do? Why some don't? I believe the Bible teaches that one are those who are responding to God's effectual calling of those who have been chosen by Him into saving faith. Do I understand all that? No, I don't. I just... It's what Scripture and the way to Scripture show me that salvation is not just potential, but it actually is caused by God. But there's something else in verse 30 that God affects this salvation, not just calling us, but He does something else besides calling. If it was just calling, then we'd say, well, there's just that potential there, but, but He doesn't do this with everyone, so it must be a specific call, because He says, those whom He called, He also what? What does it say? I'm in Romans 8.30, sorry. Romans 8.30. Those whom he has called, he is also justified. So has he justified everybody? No. What is justification? Well, Paul talks a lot about justification. Spends chapters leading up to Romans 8, uh, building up to the justification by grace. Justification, in a real simple way, is to be declared righteous. It's based on what Christ has accomplished, that Christ became the propitiation. That means that He satisfied the wrath of God, that He turned the wrath of God, that He became the sacrificial lamb, the perfect spotless sacrifice, that He and He alone paid the price that God could declare those in Christ to be justified, to be declared legally justified. He didn't say they're innocent. He didn't even say you're not guilty. He just says you've been declared righteous. And that's what justification is. Maybe this will help. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, I found this helpful. He says, when God justifies sinners, He's not declaring bad people to be good or saying that they are not sinners after all. He is pronouncing them legally righteous. Why legally? Because Christ fulfilled the demands of the law. He's declaring them legally righteous, free from any liability to the broken law. Why? Because He Himself in His Son has borne the penalty of their law breaking. You see, our faith is not in any way a merit of justification. You see, one of the fallacies of the false gospel of Roman Catholicism is that unlike Roman Catholic teaching, we do not cooperate in our justification. We're not cooperating with justification. Our faith or trust in Christ is a gift from God, and that faith, if you will, is the channel through which it is received by, uh, as a gift. Faith is, not, is a channel by which I receive this gift. Like, I reach out my hands and I receive this gift. But I in no way am cooperating and participatory in my justification. Now, don't confuse justification with sanctification, because I do cooperate in my sanctification. But I do it on this side of the ledger of the cross, not on this side. Justification is a free gift solely given and provided in God through Jesus Christ.
Christ. And the last point will be the shortest. So you can breathe a little bit. Paul argues, thirdly, not that our salvation is secure because, or our salvation is secure because in the past God originated it, and in time He affected it and brought it to pass. But thirdly, what God starts, He finishes. God will complete our salvation. Look at Romans 8.30. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Notice He uses the word glorified. This is where the time thing helps you, is that he puts glorified in the past tense. Now, we know that our glorification is something that is future. We've, there's say, we're saved. Sanctification is we're being saved. And glorification is we ultimately will be completely saved. Glorification. But he, according to verse 30, he speaks of this glorification just like he does with our calling and justification, it's already a done deal. Why? How could it be a done deal unless the God who originated it, the God who caused it, is the same God that can bring it to pass and complete it? God doesn't start something he can't deliver. It's not, an, it's not a potential salvation. It's actual God will complete us by glorifying us. This is what Paul said when this takes place. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21. Who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. John said when we studied 1 John, 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Our salvation is secure because God will complete it. Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Some people hear eternal security and perhaps like the Apostle Paul question and say, if our salvation is totally secure, won't that lead to careless living or even somehow encourage sinful behavior like hey I'm saved and there's nothing I can do about it hey let's just go and go crazy right that was what they asked Paul and accused him earlier in Romans 3 8 when he rhetorically asked the question and why not do evil that good may come he says as some people slanderously charge us with saying Later, he would say that again. He'd say, God forbid. Three quick reasons of how God's grace doesn't motivate you to be a better sinner, but to honor a wonderful Savior. One, Philippians 3, to know Him better. To know Him better. 
Paul said, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is what happens to a person when they realize that their salvation is from God from beginning to end. God, I want to know you better. Secondly, is to grow in holiness. Growing in holiness doesn't mean to wear your hair at a certain length and make your own water and live on a farm and whatever all else you do. It means that you desire to be to fulfill and knowing ultimately it will be fulfilled when you will be shaped into the image of his son. You're not waiting to heaven to do that. That's what sanctification is, is me growing in Christ's likeness every day to grow in holiness. Look at Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Since we have these promises, we've just been talking about a lot of promises, right? Since we have these promises, beloved, let us go out and go wild. No, Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That's a response. Not a response for us to not lose that salvation, but it's a response of a life who's been transformed by the Holy Spirit in Christ, by the gospel. Thirdly, Not just knowing better, growing holiness, but a person that understands amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Thirdly, we desire to serve God more faithfully. Paul said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with with me. Verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God has saved us with a purpose. God originated the salvation by setting His love in Christ upon us before eternity ever began. He affected it by calling you, not just generally, but He put His name, your name on His invitation. He called you to salvation, justified you when He brought you to faith in Christ. And he'll bring it to completion. And what will be our response? <laughs> Won't be to ask him any questions. It'll be fall on our knees and say, Great is the mighty mystery of our God. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, said that when he gets to heaven, he's going to be amazed by three different things. Three different people. He said when he gets to heaven, he's going to be amazed, one, at the people that he thought for sure would be there. And they aren't. Secondly, he'll be amazed at the folks that are there that he didn't think would be there. But he said the third thing that'll be the most amazing of all is that he was there. You see, if that is not your response to the sovereign grace of God, ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes and your heart. Does that mean you're going to have complete understanding? No, we're not at that verse that we read where we'll see him as he is and all things that are through a dark, dim window right now will be perfect when we see him face to face. We're not there yet. But the light of the Holy Spirit can bring clarity and understanding to expand and open our heart and our minds to this great God that we can say that, God, I thank you that I'm held secure by your amazing grace.